Support for Think Humanities is brought to you by the Spalding University School of Creative and Professional Writing. Think Humanities, a podcast for people who love history, philosophy, culture, literature, civic dialogue, and the arts. Think Humanities from Kentucky Humanities, where we have been telling Kentucky's stories for 48 years. Here's your host, Bill Goodman. Today on the Think Humanities podcast, a podcast, or better yet, the podcasters who produce the podcast, which is called Pantsuit Politics. A description you find on their website says it is a podcast for real conversations that help us understand politics, democracy, and the news, while still treating each other like thoughtful human beings. Sarah Stewart Holland is a co-host, a former Paducah office holder, along with Beth Silvers, a co-host and business coach and attorney. And joining them today is our friend Darlene Mazone, the president of Mazone Communications, publisher of the award-winning Western Kentucky feature publication, Paducah Life Magazine. Darlene has long been involved in the Paducah community and currently chairs the Columbia Art House Board, seeking to restore the city's historic Columbia Theater. In 2010, Darlene served on a panel representing Kentucky women in publishing at the Kentucky Women Writers Conference. And in 2016, Darlene uh, and Mazone Communications was honored with the Governor's Award for the Arts in the Media. Darlene, let me just begin with you and ask you how long you have known these two women and how would you describe their podcast? Well, I'm just meeting Beth for the first time. Hello, Beth. Hi, Darlene. So nice to meet you. I have known Sarah um, for a long time since she is about the same age as one of my sons and went to high school, of course, in Paducah. And then I got to know her much more intimately when she moved back to raise her family in Paducah and get a little closer to her hometown. Um, and so when we've worked together, as a matter of fact, Sarah's written for us um, for the magazine. So I've known her closely for the past, you know, I don't know, 10 years. How long have you been back in Paducah? I think that's about 10 years. I'm just trying to clone myself into Darling's image. We both have three boys. We both work in media. We both live in Paducah. The, the um, similarities get kind of weird sometimes, I'll be honest with you. Actually, when I when I met Sarah and interviewed her, well, it was more of a, you know, kind of a, a, a discussion and a rah-rah session when I first met her. But when I called my husband afterwards, I said, oh, my gosh, I've met a mini me. I am so excited. And and you, with Beth and, and Sarah, they w- went to school together. Uh, that's where you met the first time? We did. Yes, we have deep, deep, deep Kentucky roots. We both went to Transylvania University. And, and Darlene, you don't share that with them, though, do you? I don't, although my best friend's son went there too. So th- there are a lot of connections, you know, um, a lot of, of internal connections. Most, because uh, I know we have limited time and I have some uh, important questions. M- most of all, I have listened to the podcast since it began. Um, and in fact, was really, really excited when Sarah started talking about it to me one-on-one and even more excited the day that she texted me and said that they were going to write a book together, which of course, you know, we're going to get to. So um, I, I will say this, I was reading some reviews this morning, which I guess I really haven't you know, done all that much, but I loved a review that you all got in 2019. And it talks about the fact, um, and, and I share all of this, I thought it was really well written, that the book and the podcast are definitely about having productive political conversations, but it is so much more, so much more um, there, you know, it, it does make you examine yourself, your motives, 
um, the way you handle these conversations. I, I love the comment that they make about getting comfortable with being uncomfortable in these, you know, conversations. But um, they write with grace and humor and honesty. Well, one of the first things I want to, um, um, obviously you are uh, in a technological format, ha- having a podcast, but I know for a fact, listening to you every week, that you have to do a ton of reading. So um, let's start with you, Beth. You know, I- I'd like to know, how, how do you prepare? What, what do you read? Who do you turn to? What authors do you trust? Um, what kinds of things, you know, are you reading to put together this comprehensive um, broadcast every week? Well, my reading always begins with the main newspapers in the United States. And every day when I'm preparing to think about what are we going to talk about on the show? How are we going to talk about it? I'm looking across the board, Wall Street Journal, New York Times, Washington Post. I love long reads from the Atlantic. Um, I love email newsletters. I get a variety of those. I know Sarah does as well so that we can sort of follow threads day over day. I spend, because of my sort of particular angle on our podcast, a lot of time on the Supreme Court's website, just reading Supreme Court opinions as they come out, um, and SCOTUS blog, which analyzes some of the motion practice happening before the court. And then I read a lot of nonfiction. I know Sarah does too. We're lucky that we receive uh, lots of inquiries about potential guests for our podcast, so we're able to take in many new books as they're being authored about policy. Um, And I really try to look at the backgrounds of the people writing those books. And I'm always looking for what's next. And I think that's really complimentary about Sarah and me, as many things are. I'm always really interested in who's really looking at the future of an issue. And Sarah is so good at looking for who's examined the past of this issue so that we can put those two sides together as we move on with the show. Interesting. Sarah? I mean, my news consumption is pretty similar. Um, I listen to NPR's Up First and ABC's Start Here every morning. Um, I take in a couple of news podcasts and then I read the New York Times. I read the Washington Post. I read the Wall Street Journal. Um, and I really like Axios's coverage. I think that they do a really good job. So I take in a wide variety of news. And, you know, we do this because it's our job. But I think picking one of those is always a really good option and following the thread through one source day after day, because you'll get a lot more complexity and detail if you just stick with it. Um, I read a lot of fiction, but I um, read also a lot of nonfiction. I think my approach to nonfiction has evolved as since we've started the podcast and that I'm usually taking in. Um, like one behemoth at a time. So a couple of years ago, I read Jill Lepore's These Truths. Um, then I read Ibram X. Kendi's Stamp from the Beginning. Um, I'm reading Andrew Solomon's Far From the Tree right now, which is just like the most amazing book and like truly complex and in-depth. I, I have like one of those like just giant, meaty, um, sometime historical. I wouldn't necessarily, I guess Andrew Solomon's is a lot of history, but um, book at a time. And then I'm reading maybe like one shorter nonfiction. Um, I like political theory a lot. Um, and then usually a fiction book. So I've got a lot of, I like a lot of information. If anybody's ever done the strength finders, that was my number one strength was information. Like just, I know other people get anxiety, but I find it's like a weighted blanket, just bury me in information. And a lot of that comes from books. Um, what about, so all of these things, the current um, production of all of these tell-alls and people who are coming out with now all of this, this you know, background look at where they were and where we're going and so forth. You know, how do you 
How do you wade through those? Do you read any of those? And do you find that those are pertinent to our our reading lists as, as, you know, as readers? We read some of them. Sometimes we split them up if several are coming out at once. I think my perspective is that we read those more so that we can answer questions from our audience. I'm not sure that they enrich our thinking very much at this point. I'm not sure that they benefit our society a lot. Uh, I think especially with this administration, we need some space and time to get a different perspective. I I think we're saturated with understandings of just the the blow by blow. Um, But it is important to us to be credible sources of information for the audience. And so if everybody's talking about a book, we read Mary Trump's book, for example, because we were getting so many questions about it. And, you know, occasionally you find an idea or two that's valuable there. Uh, But I wouldn't say that that helps set the direction of the show as much as other books that aren't on the popular radar might. I think for me, you know, I really enjoyed Mary Trump's book. I thought it offered me a lot of depth and complexity and understanding about the Trump family. And for better, for worse, they are a part of our, you know, country moving forward. Henceforth, they're here, you know, and so I found it really helpful I think sometimes those memoirs, reading them is helpful because if you just read the like, here are the six takeaways from this tell-all, I think that is more anxiety producing than when you actually just read the entire book and get the entire um, nuanced or context or um, just there's always more to it. And, and I think you see this in news stories too with quotes. And I think it's true for the memoirs too. Like they, they pick six things and they're picking the most incendiary things, which if you go to the memoir and read deeper, you, I'm not saying you'll feel better, but it won't just be like this very like anxiety reaction. You'll have a, a better, deeper um, understanding of what that particular person's perspective is on the, on the issue. Well, that's, Actually, a perfect segue into something else I wanted to talk about. Perfect. Because um, I had a conversation the other day at an event with um, John Peaty, who is the executive director of the National Endowment for the Humanities. And we talked a lot. He talked a lot. We had this discussion in a group about deep reading. Um, that's a question that I have for you all. And, and interestingly, he said, um, I'll, I'll read you this. Reading is not the only way to participate in the humanities, but it is near impossible to picture a robust humanities culture without serious reading. And this is particular to you guys, I think, and I'd like your perspective on this. A robust civic culture is similarly inconceivable without deeply literate citizens. And I know you all talk about this. I've heard you talk about it many times, and and I so appreciate that because I feel like that that's an element, you know, within our culture and our society that we need to be addressing. Um, Beth, do you want to start that conversation about how important that is? to democracy, to your conversations about politics? Just on the most basic level, as Sarah was saying about reading a full book versus the six takeaways, we will be calmer and more able to have a real conversation about what's happening when more of us are reading. Reading the news versus watching it on television, those are completely different experiences. Sarah and I were chatting yesterday about the anxiety we were hearing from listeners who were spending a lot of time on Twitter. And a lot of things came out on Twitter yesterday that could produce some anxiety. And I kept thinking about how I would read about those events in this morning's newsletters when there has been time to process them and put them in some context. And I just felt calmer 
thinking about reading versus taking it in in those bits of social media. So I think that's the first step. The second thing I would say is I am very concerned about our ability to have elections where we all have confidence in them if more of us don't understand how the government works, who is responsible for what aspects of leadership, what is a president able to do versus a senator, what is a federal official able to do versus a state official. And I think that when you read well, those structural components over time start to seep in and you just process information differently because you have a richer understanding of your government. And that's not even venturing into all the ways that reading develops empathy and uh, reading things that have nothing to do with politics enrich your understanding of how we can live in community with each other. Now, I think that Beth is 100% correct that, you know, reading and giving your time, your mind time to respond instead of react is what's missing in our civic culture. There's a lot of reaction and social media has given us every tool imaginable to feed that need to react instead of to take a minute and respond. You know, that's why I like podcasting because you can't skim a podcast, right? Like I think it, it takes a level of engagement and thought um, and processing and that response time that's so, so essential right now. And we really, really need that. Well, here's another question. And I, I, I appreciate the fact, and those who don't haven't listened to your podcast, you know, would also appreciate if when, when, and if they do, and I'm sure they will after this, having those three boys. And I know um, Beth has two daughters and Sarah has three young children. Um, that was another part of the discussion with John Petey at this uh, conference, you know, was youth engagement and how we get our children to read and engage in reading. So how, how do you, I know you guys are very, you know, strong on this, you know, and, and very involved, but um, share with people how you are doing that in your own homes, you know, and how you feel like, you know, we should do that as a society in terms of getting our kids engaged. We really prioritize reading in our home. You know, we um, read to our kids at night, especially our little one who can't read yet. Um, we, we're distance learning right now, so we have time built into the schedule to take rest and to read. Um, but, and I, we've, we've built in some time on one weekday night where we're reading a book together. Um, but I think, you know, I'm, I'm constantly worried about it. I woke up this morning worried that my 11-year-old is spending too much time on video games, and I haven't seen him deeply ensconced in a book in a while, and I'm, like, sweating that. I think it's something, like, I'm, I'm constantly aware of. It's not like I'm ever done. Um, making sure that that's a priority in our house. I think one of the biggest things is being an example in front of my kids, just because I want them to see that as like, that's what I choose to do with my leisure time. I read way more than I watch television at night. And I want them to see that as well. And I think, you know, one of the things I read a long time ago that really impacted me is one of the, the most important components of having children that read is having a calm environment in which they can read. Now that's hard with three boys under the age of 12. Um, but I really do try to think about like, do we have quiet moments in our schedule? Are we not going, going, going all the time so that people can, um, rest and read and relax. And I just, I mean, it is definitely a top priority of me for my, my husband and I, and I think about it a lot. Daughters are nine and five. We have far more books than toys. And that's always our intention. Whenever anyone asks, you know, what can we give your daughters for birthdays or Christmas? We always say books. We spend time at the library and we make going to the library an event that we're excited about. 
in the evening before bedtime, we've started doing family reading time where all four of us get our own books and sit together in one room and get absorbed in our own books. Uh, we talk about what we're reading at dinner, you know, tell me about how, how things are, if, are, are developing in this adventure novel you're reading, Jane, um, and get excited about that. I think the biggest challenge we have right now is encouraging specifically our nine-year-old to read a variety of books because she gets really excited about a particular series and will get really locked into that series. And we want that, but we also want to make sure that she's challenging herself and growing and being exposed to new things. So we've been talking a lot about how sometimes we do reading for fun. Sometimes we do reading to learn information. Sometimes we do reading just to challenge ourselves. We pick a book that we know is going to be a little difficult for us. And here's one that I've chosen lately that's hard for me to read. And here's one that your dad has chosen that's difficult for him because we want those stretch books too. Um, so that's been um, a topic of great discussion in our house. But that goes to show you that, you know, that what what kind of readers are we cultivating here is really important to us. Darlene, if I can, uh, let me just add uh, before we take a, a real quick break uh, that I should have had all of you zoom into my class uh, that I just finished at Transylvania. I was teaching an introduction to journalism class uh, this semester and it just wrapped up. But I'm telling you, if I had, uh, and I, I find this just about every semester, so I should get over it, uh, but I am pretty surprised uh, the very first class or two when I asked them about their, um, as you just talked about, uh, the, the touches they have with media and, and, and what those sources of information for an 18 and a 20-year-old are. And it's pretty surprising. I, 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 um, I think if they developed the reading habits that you're talking about uh, earlier, you know, I would even challenge you uh, to maybe think back uh, when you were students at Transylvania, were you talking about the New York Times and watching whatever, CNN or or whatever? I, I do, you don't have to answer that, but it is a, um, I, I think at the end, the, the best thing, one of the best things they, the students can tell me at the end of the semester is that, uh, uh, Dr. Goodman, you, we appreciate so much you exposing us to what's really going on out there because I remember the first class this semester when I asked one very bright, um, they're all very bright, uh, one very bright young uh, man uh, where he had uh, watched the debate or heard uh, of the first debate and he said uh, Snapchat. And I said, gosh, I didn't know they had a newsfeed. Oh yeah, of course they do. Snapchat, is it called Snapchat newsfeed? <laughs> so uh, you know, it's a it's different, but at least he knew and had uh, participated in some way. But we'll get back uh, to Sarah Stewart Holland and Beth Silvers and Darlene Mazone right after this important word from our good friends at Spalding University. The Spalding University School of Creative and Professional Writing offers students intellectual rigor, emotional support, affordability, flexibility and community at the world's first certified compassionate university. From certificate to terminal degree, the programs at Spalding School of Writing foster lifelong writing habits and help you forge a lasting writing community. Learn more at spalding.edu slash school of writing or email school of writing at spalding.edu. 
All right, we're back with uh, Darlene, who I've just sent a uh, a contract to to join me as co-host of the of the Think Humanities podcast. You're doing a great job, so take it away, Darlene. Well, I, I do think you know I do think it's important um, to talk about maybe the um, the digital format of versus you know the, the printed page. You know, I know we have a lot of um, mixed emotions about that. I wanted to ask you guys, you know, and I'm, and this is very important to me, so I hope this doesn't impact anyone's friendship. But do you guys read mostly on the printed page or mostly on a digital format, or do you balance it? How, how do you guys personally do that? I read articles and long reads and news stories digitally. And when I'm reading a book, I like it to be on the printed page. I'm very balanced. Um, uh, So I read, I do a lot of reading through the public library. And because I like the deadline of a return date, but I also like to highlight So this can be a conflict. The best solution to that conflict is to get them through Kindle, which I love. And it's very convenient for a mother of three to just be like, your book is ready. Here you go. Ding, here it is. Um, That being said, like the big books, um, the Andrew Solomon book, when I go through a book um, like that, I usually purchase them, even though it probably would make more sense on a Kindle because it's a giant. It's like hauling around a brick. But um, because I like to, I like the combo of the library, but I have to be able to highlight the Kindle works well for library books. And I will say that there's this amazing service called Readwise, which will upload your Kindle highlights and then email them to you. So you can review and be like, oh yeah, I loved that quote. I know you would like that. I know you would like that, darling. You can send it your highlights from like, if you read through Instapaper or any of those other like long read services where you save an article, it'll send you the highlights from them too. Well, I, I actually meant to, since I am between several locations, I meant to bring my um, book. Um, I think you're wrong, but I'm listening because I, I literally used up a couple of stacks of sticky notes. There's the book. I kid you not, I probably underlined and sticky noted every two or three pages. It got to be ridiculous at one point. Well, before we have, uh, before we run out of time, I also want to talk about writing, reading and writing. Those are two things that go um, hand in hand, obviously. Um, And I personally am fascinated as to how two people write a book together. Um, Beth, um, do you want to kick that off and tell me what's the process? We stumbled, I think, into a very good process by luck. I think there are a lot of ways this could have been a really hard process. But because we communicate so often, (laughs) I think we knew enough about each other to know that if we start in a way that's organized and that has both of us in it, then we can proceed from there with this sense of a um, a, a blended voice in the book. So we uh, got together in person to outline the book very comprehensively, and we recorded all of our discussions as we did that. So that as we sat down to write, once we kind of assigned pieces to each other, and we broke each chapter into multiple pieces, so that the first draft of each chapter was written by both of us just in different sections, we had each other in our ears. And, And as I was writing, I listened to us talking through that chapter so that I made sure that Sarah's, not just her ideas, but her words were making it into that first draft. And then once we finished our sections, we turned them over to each other and continued. There were times when we would write 
you know, brackets, please say more about this, you know, this idea that you have. And I think it just kept bouncing back and forth in a way that worked really well. It was important to us to write a book that didn't feel like a tennis match where you're kind of looking to Beth and then to Sarah and and back and forth. We really wanted to have one voice throughout the book, but both of us um, in that voice. And I think that the process, especially of recording our conversations and referencing them again, helped us do that. Wow. That's, that's amazing. Sarah? Well, and I think, you know, we, one of the biggest problems they tell you that writers struggle with, especially as first draft is not sufficiently outlining where they're going. Um, Well, we couldn't do that. We had to have a really comprehensive outline because we had to know which parts we were doing and, and which part the other person was doing and where we were heading the whole time. And I think forcing us to get to that level of um, detail in the outline, because there were two of us was a huge, huge asset in the writing process. I think that's an amazing accomplishment. I often think about this when I see people, you know, who are writing books cooperatively. Do you, um, I thought it was, I mean, obviously, I thought it was an excellent book. And that was something that that I came away with afterwards was, you know, how do you, how do you blend those voices, as Beth mentioned, you know, because you guys have very distinctive personalities, and very different personalities. And I would assume, you know, based on that, probably different writing style. Did you talk about that? Did you have conversation about that? How did you sort of blend your voices into something that I I felt like as a read was very, you know, consistent and cohesive? I will have to give a lot of credit to our editor. Um, She was amazing and, and just was incredibly adept and attuned to our voices and what we were trying to say and just did a really beautiful job of, um, putting those pieces together and blending them and making sure um, you can hear both of our, our voices and our styles, I think throughout the book. So I'm going to give mad credit to Jessica on that one. I also think we were very clear about who we were writing for and that influenced the voice and the style a lot. We had a clear picture of, you know, we hope lots of different kinds of people have enjoyed the book. But we had a clear picture of the person that we really wanted to sit down and feel connected with. And I think that helped. You know, if you follow us on Instagram, you can see differences in our writing styles. There are lots of um, members of our audience who will say, I just knew from the first sentence that this was Sarah or, you know, and, and and I think that's good and important. I think with the book, in addition to having an excellent editor, our clarity about what we wanted to say and who we wanted to say it to helped us. That's that's interesting because I've heard I've seen some people comment on Instagram and social media about oh I knew that or, or when you were talking on Instagram some of the other day said I'd, I'd like to know which one of you is saying that because you don't always you know designate but um, I, I want to ask you sort of a fun question I know uh, from my own experience when I've read memoirs and those kinds of essayists and you meet this author you feel like they're your best friend. You know, I met Anne Lamott once at a reading and, and I know you guys are not traveling right now, but I know how much you've enjoyed that this past, you know, couple of years. Tell me a little bit about what that's like. We have the most amazing community. I mean, there's really not enough adjectives to convey the, the depth and empathy and connection um, that we feel with our listeners, but there's just nothing like me in the face-to-face. We did a tour in 2019. Um, it was one of the most rewarding experiences of my life. It's exhausting because the emotions tied up in our particular subject are very intense. Um, and so we carry a lot of emotions of our listeners. And so even right now, when we're not seeing people face-to-face, it can be a lot. 
Um, but you know, it's just, it's, it's incredibly special to have people share their lives with you and to meet you and to burst into tears and feel like, um, they have so much they want to tell you in such a short amount of time. And, um, realizing that you're impacting people because, you know, when I'm in the booth and I'm just talking to Beth, um, it's hard to remember that, you know, thousands and thousands of people are listening. Um, but seeing them in person and seeing their faces and meeting their kids and, um, I think it makes this, it makes us better writers and it makes the show better because, um, it, it, you're with, they're with you, you carry them, you know? And so there's no way it makes me tear up. There's no way to talk to them or about them or write for them and not feel that, feel them with you and remember, Oh, well, this person said this and their heart was broken over this issue. And like, you just, um, it becomes a part of who you are. Absolutely. You know, it's always funny because there's a moment when we meet people where they verbalize. I know everything about you and you know nothing about me. How do we start a conversation here? (laughs) And it's really fun to see just the diversity within our audience, people's life experiences all over the place to hear what people do when they listen to us. Like, I feel like I should be doing laundry because you guys are always with me when I'm folding laundry, that kind of thing, or walking the dog or training for a marathon. And it, it's just very motivating. And I, I feel a little bit guilty sometimes about how rewarding it is to have that community when so many writers don't get that level of connection or it takes so long into their careers before they have enough of an audience to get that level of connection. Um, and I wonder, like, what great work is not being done because people haven't been fed the way that we've been fed by the response from the audience? Um, so I just think I would say to anyone, if you love someone's work, finding a way to connect with them and telling them matters a lot. You're never bothering someone when you say, here's how your work has impacted me. It's very motivating. Darlene, if I may, let me, uh, break in and, uh, and say that uh, once again, the title of the book is, I think you're wrong, but I'm listening, uh, by Sarah Stewart Holland and, and Beth Silvers available on, uh, in all the outlets that you know of, but we um, at Kentucky Humanities uh, have a great partnership with independent bookstores across the uh, country, across Kentucky. Uh, Joseph Beth Booksellers uh, is our partner for the Kentucky uh, Book Festival. And also, uh, one of our sponsors uh, this year has been Paducah Life. And we so appreciate Darlene's uh, interest in uh, Kentucky Humanities and the Kentucky Book Festival and hope to build on that uh, through uh, the years. And uh, Darlene, if, if I may ask you a question, um, and, and in these, these times, um, you have such a wonderful readership uh, all over, but uh, particularly in Western uh, Kentucky, uh, in, in the purchase, uh, as they say. Um, what are the challenges for you to continue to put out such a uh, high quality engrossing uh, magazine um, many times during the year at a time when so much of what we do has has turned to digital and online um, it it must continue to be a uh, um, a challenge uh, for you. Tell me about that The answer to that question would be money money <laughs> um, you know it, it, 
the magazine has, we're celebrating our 30th anniversary, actually. So I'm, I'm glad you asked that question because that's pretty amazing to me. And, and I would say that Beth and um, Sarah would, would say exactly the same thing that, that I'm saying now to you, because I know how their relationship started. I've heard this from Sarah, you know, all along the way is that, you know, you kind of just put one foot in front of the other. You do a magazine and then you do, you know, the first year we did three, the next year we did four, the next year we did four, then, but then finally we got to a bi-monthly, you know, circulation. But I mean, the the challenges are really just how to keep it alive and well right now in the current, you know, technological situation when people can literally advertise for free on all of these platforms. And they're important. You know, I've heard both Beth and Sarah talk about this, too. All of these things contribute to bringing us to a knowledgeable society. And that's what we all want, obviously. Topics and content has never been a challenge for us. There are so many stories to be told out there. And we, you know, virtually don't have the time and space really to tell them all which is why we too have in, instituted uh, a weekly, you know, around and about with Pretty Good Life magazine as a digital post, you know, each week. But uh, the challenges are really for, for, for books and for periodicals is to find a way to keep them alive and well, because, you know, you're paying writers and designers and photographers. And so it, it's, there's money involved, you know, with um, mailing them and printing them, you know, and um, postage. And so it's, it's a, the, the business side of it is, is challenging. You know, um, I am encouraged to read in industry um, uh, emails and um, networks, you know, that, that things are going pretty well for most publications. You know, um, I, I think there's no question that the content drives our success and it always has and it always will. Um, but, but for every, you know, book and, you know, magazine out there these days, you know, the, the challenges are, you know, how to financially and operationally stay alive and well. And we just, we just keep working hard with the things we do well, we think, and that is, you know, the content that we have there, you know, and, and I'm pretty sure Pantsuit Politics feels the same way because that is exactly why I tune in, you know, every week is because I know the content is going to be of the highest quality. And, and I think that's our bottom line, obviously. And thanks for asking. Well, thank you. And thank you for participating uh, today. Uh, I really appreciate it. And once again, thanks for being uh, one of our sponsors at the uh, virtual uh, Kentucky Book Festival. Uh, which we had uh, this year in 2020, uh, and hopefully we'll all be back uh, together face to face next year. Uh, Beth and um, and and Sarah, uh, thank you so much. Uh, the book's wonderful. It's a um, a, a book that uh, when it came out, uh, we know we needed, and uh, I think it that part of it has just grown uh, uh, as we record this and as this podcast is is posted uh, something that uh, we we want to hear, we want to read. I, I just think that, um, and also uh, uh, another shameless plug for Sarah and a piece that uh, she wrote for you, uh, Darlene, uh, Paducah Life, in, in, in the latest edition on, on citizenship, which is so well done. And uh, it's that kind of writing that you're talking about. So well, let me mention, before we go, let me mention, because it is an excellent piece of work, you know, and we were really happy that she was willing to do that for us. Um, our uh, magazine is available to everybody to read online at issue, issu.com. So just, you know, plug in Paducah Life magazine, because that, along with a number of other things, but it was a really great essay, and we were very pleased that we could share that. Thanks again, Sarah, for writing that for us before the uh, primary, I mean, before the election, the uh, November election. So. Thanks for asking me. 
Thank you all uh, very much. Uh, we hope uh, you're, you're uh, all so busy, but maybe some uh, at some time in 2021, we could all get back together and, and uh, celebrate a, a better America. How about that? Let's do it. Thank you so much. Thank you. Think Humanities is a podcast from Kentucky Humanities, where we have been telling Kentucky's stories for 48 years. Think Humanities is available at kyhumanities.org, iTunes, and SoundCloud. Join us next week for a new episode of Think Humanities.